0: Welcome to Tripod, Improved Photography's nature photography show. This show is for the weekend photo warriors, the wave of flashlight around in the black of nighters, and the F sixteen users. This is Tripod. Welcome back to this episode of Tripod. I'm on the line with Majid Badazad again. Hey, Majid, what's up? How's it going, Jim? Well, uh, today we are going to go like on a topic that's way too broad for one podcast, uh, but I I kind of want to go through it because I think it will be really helpful. Uh, today we're going to talk about like the muscle memory of landscape photography. You know, as you get to shoot more on any in any genre, you've really developed muscle memory and your own recipe for just like this is how I shoot and how I approach things. And of course it changes over time and you do things different to switch it up, but you really develop that muscle memory. And so I want to go from the start of like where do you choose to shoot All the way through to I'm going to post this sucker on Facebook of just the muscle memory. And there will, of course, be differences between us, uh, but I think uh, that's kind of the joy of this. Ready to go? I'm ready. Let's all take
1: a stab at it. All right,
0: <laughs> it's like the most broad uh, podcast topic ever. All right, Majid. So you got to choose where to go shoot. Uh, obviously, it's going to change every time. But what's what's uh, your favorite places to go shoot, or how do you decide? Ooh, I got to go to this place next.
1: Well, lately I've been um, really in a rut. I would say um, just being in the same area. And going to shoot the same places. Um, Mm -hmm. It's really nice when you can drive somewhere and drive back on the same day. And I have a lot of options within a couple hours. But um, when you go to those same places year after year, they start to lose their luster. I told somebody lately, I've kind of felt like I've gotten numb to um, beauty and nature. Everything um, Oregon. Because I've I've gone to those places so many times. um, So my my goal is now to kind of get out of my comfort zone. Um, and when I'm going to choose that, I mean, I'll, I'll look at other people's pictures, but what, what would you say? Like if you haven't been to a place before, how would you find um, a new place to go outside of what you usually go? Well,
0: I, I, my favorite way to, to approach a new place is to have really set, areas that I'm going to shoot sunrise here, sunset there, sunrise here, sunset there. Um, and you know, I'll usually map it out. So I have places to go like set places. Um, usually if I don't do that, I'm in trouble. Uh, I, I get where I'm just kind of like driving country roads, finding nothing and there's a beautiful <laughs> sunset and it's like, uh, that that's frustrating. So I like having set places to go before I even leave the house, but leaving lots of time between locations for serendipitous things you're driving the country road and there's this perfect little hill and a fence line and it's like yes awesome i can shoot this you know
1: absolutely so what what is the the coolest new place you've been to lately (sighs) um Let's see. Well, I, I went up and shot
0: the Palouse a few weeks ago, and it's new to me. <laughs> Obviously, not exactly a, a, a brand new place around the world, but I've never been there. Uh, so, I shot that, and that was cool. But in terms of like new, new, like other people don't shoot here new, I found an awesome old abandoned mine near Boise a few weeks ago. I think this was a month ago, and uh, I found it just looking on Google Google like satellite view. The What do you call that? Uh, Google earth. Right. Um, and I spotted like this little house and I knew it was on public land in that area. And so I just, uh, I started doing some research and I found out there was a mine there, but it's like right by Boise and nobody ever talks about this place. And so I hiked in there. It was a crazy hard hike, which <laughs> explains why nobody ever goes there. Uh, and it was like this awesome, awesome building like it's like begs you to take a photo there uh so that's the place that i was i'm most excited about shooting recently very cool all right so we get the idea decide where where we're going to go um what do you do in terms of weather like what's your go-to app how do you decide sunrise sunset
1: so i think that weather is the first consideration um if i am going to make a short Um, so I guess there's two answers to that question. One is, is this a, a short term trip or something that's planned way in advance?
0: Let's say you got, I mean, you got your options. Let's say, I mean, sometimes you just got to go and what's there is there, but if you got your options, what's, what's the best case scenario?
1: Yeah. So if, if there's, um, if you have options and you have access to locations, then I would let weather dictate. Um, so here in the Willamette Valley in Oregon. Um, I'm a three hour drive from mountains, uh, one hour drive from coast, one and a half hour drive from waterfalls, um, lakes, deserts, whatever. I have a lot of options out here so I can watch weather fairly closely and make the decision based on what weather's looking like. So Um,
0: what's ideal? What do you see? And you're like, Ooh, I'm going there.
1: I really like to use, um, so weather.gov. I think it is, has um, hourly forecasts which include cloud cover, um, shows precipitation levels, and you can really dive into those hourly charts and get a really good idea around golden hour times, what cloud cover, precipitation, that type of thing looks for. I'm usually looking for about 70% cloud cover, and then I'm also looking at satellites and looking where the sun is setting and seeing if there's a big block of clouds, you know, 200 miles long, or if there's a big open hole where um, the sun's going to be setting. So um, the photographer's ephemeris works really well for that. Just drop a um, geolocation on the spot you're going. Um, If that location is a sunrise or sunset spot, just follow that line. um, And then look at a corresponding cloud or weather radar um, to see what the guy's doing are you using photo pills as well or just TPE you know I got um one of our podcast listeners of photo pills um, works for photo pills and sent me a, a, a code but I never actually um, got into the depths of it what about you Uh, I use PhotoPills. I I own both. I have them both on my
0: phone, and they're both hard to use for me, (laughs) for my simple mind. I have a hard time navigating them, but they're just very feature-filled apps, and so you can't fault them too much. I mean, they're just really feature-filled apps, and so it is going to take some time to to learn it. Uh, I've just figured out kind of how to use some things on PhotoPills, and so I use it. I don't know necessarily which one's better, uh, but but I can at least get the information I need from there. In terms of just weather though, I started using radar scope after I interviewed on here on this podcast on tripod. Uh, we did an interview with a storm chaser, tornado chaser. Uh, and he said, all the pro guys are using a radar scope. And so I was like, okay, sign me up. (laughs) And what I like about that one is it has so many different layers that you can put on there. You know, you can have it, uh, notify you, give warnings if there's a, you know, lightning storm coming, uh, things like that. If there's a tornado, uh, warning in an area, you can see that on the map. Uh, and you can go drive
1: it, and try to shoot it.
0: Yes. <laughs> uh, so I, I like it. I think it's, I think it's a pretty cool app, but again, it's not something that you just open up and you're like, poof, that's where the clouds are. I mean it's it's a professional app so they'll have different types of radar and all stuff and it's taken me a while to mess with the settings until it's like okay this kind of reflects what I'm going to see when I look out the window which is what's going to be helpful for me. All right, you pick your weather and now uh, it's time to go. You get to the get to the location. Um I, I mean are you
1: 90% of the time shooting
0: sunrise and sunset?
1: 90 Eight percent of the time, um, just coming back from Iceland for eight days, there are some exceptions to that. But also, golden hour lasts a lot longer. Yeah, um, and I guess the the mantra that I live by is like, "This is a cool shot right now here in the day, but would this be even better in ideal light?" So, um, we were at um, one of the Icelandic canyons, um, which is about a mile, um an hour outside of Vic, and. Um, there's some locations that sunset or sunset light doesn't make as much sense, and this is one of those locations because it's a deep canyon um, that cuts through um, these the highlands, and um, by that time you're not really getting much sky anyway, so it's not critical that um, the colors there, um, but just with the um, the sky being. Um, the sun being low in the sky and north, the light was reaching the tops of these canyon walls, um, and it was really beautiful. So there are exceptions. I think most of the time, I'm asking myself, would this shot be better in better light, and I make the decision based on that. Um, what about you?
0: Yeah, I, well, I, I I totally agree with that. Same thing. If you're you know in the mountains of Idaho and you're shooting, um, you know, you're shooting the the, uh, well, the mountains, you know, tall mountains like sunset is going to be about the worst time to shoot it. The light is already gone. It probably left two hours ago, three hours ago when you have really tall mountains next to you. Same thing. If you're shooting like fall color, well, the fall color often looks really, really good um, during the middle of the day. But, you know, it's blue skies with puffy clouds and that blue just contrasts so well with, right, right. with beautiful yellow leaves. In fact, sometimes the photo can tend to look... You know, we had Ted Gore on the show and he was talking about, you know, we're always looking for this crazy sunset and then it has a tendency to just make the photo look tie-dyed, just like insane color everywhere. Um, and that really explained to me why you know, that, that fall color often looks well, looks good during the day. Cause you have crazy color on the trees. If you have crazy color in the sky too, it's just like kind of an assassination of color. And so, uh, so there are about a million exceptions to the sunset sunrise, but, um, I mean, most of the time, if it's just a general standard place, then yeah, it's, it's going to be that for me. All right. We decided what time we're going to go. We actually get to the place uh, to talk about gear just briefly. We all know gear isn't exactly going to make art for you, uh, but what's your standard gear for shooting landscapes,
1: lens, camera, et cetera. So 30 to 40 pounds of gear minimum on the back. <laughs> apparently, apparently, if you're going to shoot a few Canon lenses and keep a tripod with you, that's uh, the going weight these years. Um, maybe that's why you're in such good shape, Majid. <laughs> oh, yeah. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> it's from that 11 to 24. When I was Standing in the airport for an hour waiting for the luggage carousel to start. It started to feel like, uh, yeah, I should probably take this off my back at some point. <laughs> um, so, so, um, gear, I'm kind of straddling, um, the fence. I'm, um, there's kind of this, um, Canon Sony love triangle going on right now. Um, where I have all Canon glass and Sony body. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just am not quite ready to make that full jump to Sony yet. What's keeping you back? I believe in their bodies and um I've seen good things from their glass, but I just kind of ten percent of me is just hoping Canon's gonna release this body. Um That's going to blow my mind because I've always really liked the ergonomics, the battery life. Um, The user experience of Canon was always great, but their sensors just really started to lag behind in the last three, four years um, in the face of Nikon, Sony. Um, So I'm just kind of in a holding pattern and that puts me awkwardly in between. (laughs) Um, What about you? What are you shooting these days? Well, I, I made the switch over to Sony really, uh, just
0: to experience a new, a new system. I am, I am really liking it, but I liked Fuji as well. The Achilles heel that I've talked about a lot of times is the wide angle lens on the Fuji system. There's only one option. Uh, and it's, it's pretty mediocre. Um, So, uh, so that's, that's one reason to switch, but really I switch all the time. I switch to different camera brands about every two years (laughs) and it's because, you know, we have listeners that shoot all different brands. And so I kind of want to know them all. Uh, It's not really. Yeah, I shot Canon and then Nikon and then Fuji and then, and then Sony. Uh, It's not so much that, uh, you know, the grass is greener on the other side of the fence kind of deal. It's really just, I want to experience new systems and know what's out there so I can talk about it.
1: Absolutely. That's fascinating to me because I'd love to, maybe on a different episode, but hear um, your overall like, experience with, with each of them and um, strengths and weaknesses.
0: Yeah. Nobody makes a perfect camera. Yeah, They all have strengths and they all have weaknesses. And so it, even, even matching it to your genre is important, but more than that, it's just what you personally can deal with and what you really value.
1: Yeah, there's a lot of trade-offs um, shooting with Sony. Like, it's it's my primary outdoor camera, but it's allergic to water. Uh-huh. So, <laughs> I, you had a little bit of experience with your Fuji too much, yep. shooting yeah. <laughs> <laughs> hey, guys, I'm down here at this beautiful waterfall, and my camera isn't working. <laughs> oh, man, that's the worst. I, I've been there too many times. Well,
0: hopefully, the a7R 3 will fix that for yeah. us. Um, yeah. But, I, I yeah,
1: anyway... Um, It's so hard not to go down the gearhead road. It's so hard. (laughs) It
0: it really is. But you know, what's helped me in that regard is to just realize that I'm a gearhead because it's fun. It's part of the hobby to me. I realize it's not going to make the art for me. It's just part of the hobby. It's kind of like collecting cards or something where you're just into the details (laughs) because you want to be. It's just fun. So, yeah. Yeah. All right, so you get, you got your standard standard gear. We're on the fence between Canon and Sony. Um, <laughs> uh, how, oh, you didn't mention a lens though. Are you are you shooting the eleven to twenty four? Is it 11-24 or the
1: sixteen thirty five? So I actually just picked up the sixteen thirty five Mark three from Canon. Nice. Um, and the one hundred to four hundred Mark two, um, and was really I've really been enjoying both of those lenses. Um, I'm I. I Still have the 7200 Canon, uh, the Canon 7200 2.8 Mark II. Um, these are all heavy, big lenses. Yeah. So, so when you're um, moving around a lot, um, it it can you can really start to feel that weight. What about you? What lenses are you shooting? Well, I have the 16-35 Sony, which is,
0: it's mediocre as well. It's better than the Fuji wide angle, but it's still mediocre. Uh, But they've of course announced the new 16-35 Mark II for the Sony system. Um, And that lens I'm really excited about. I have it on pre-order. The second it gets in here, I'm very anxious to test it. Um, Is that 2.8 as well? It is a 2.8, which is exciting for me because now I can use one lens for landscape photos and take it out and shoot night as well. I really, that's awesome. Um, uh, But also it's incredibly lightweight. Like for a Pro Series lens, an f 2.8 16 to 35. It's like half the weight, um, which I really value that. Especially coming from Fuji, I really value having uh, lighter weight gear. Uh, it does make me happier when I'm out shooting, especially traveling. I mean, if I'm if I'm driving in the car to a location and walk a hundred feet to this spot, I, I don't really care how much it weighs. But if you're traveling and you're got this thing on your bag in the airport for 20 hours as you're getting on different flights and stuff, oh man, it just makes it so much more pleasant to have lightweight gear.
1: Well, if you end up loving it, I may have to drop my 16 to 35. Um, your, yeah, your Canon Because huh? that's one thing you lose when you're adapting lenses um, is you lose all that native functionality, all those fancy um, focusing and focus tracking and yep. you get some of it with a Metabone smart adapter, but not all of it. So... It's, it's a limited functionality. A lot of the boxes on my camera are gray.
0: You, I mean, you know you don't have to drop it. You don't have to break it. You could just buy a different
1: one. <laughs> that's true. That's, that's a good <laughs> point. I'll take that under advisement, but that's not my usual tradition. <laughs>
0: All right. Enough about gear. Um, we're we're gonna gonna go shoot a location. How do you approach your composition? How do you decide where you're gonna stand? I mean, that's that's like the first part of the composition is not just what you're gonna put in the frame, but like where are you gonna stand when you get to a landscape?
1: So what? The question that I ask myself um, is, what is beautiful about this location, and what do I want this photo to be about? And then um, there's specific things that I'm trying to show, but just as many things as I'm trying to show, I'm also, there's an equal amount of things that I don't want to show. Um, and that helps, um, I guess, reduce the the scene to something more simple and accessible. Um, so I, I see this, I guess I've done landscape for so long, now I walk up to a scene and I see, um, you know, a waterfall, not as a waterfall, but I see it as where's the, the nicest, um, textured water. (laughs) Where's the, Mm -hmm. um, rock that I can put in the foreground. Where's, where's my mid ground. Where's, how does the sky play into this? Um, that type of thing. So it's like this puzzle, um, that you're putting together and Um, Typically, thinking in terms of foreground, mid-ground, background is is where I will start. Um, What kind of approach are you taking, especially when you go to a new location?
0: Yeah, well, in terms of where to stand, one mistake that I have been making that I think has been holding me back is I've been getting too close to what's interesting, like particularly waterfalls. Uh, I've made the mistake consistently over time to like walk up to the waterfall and shoot it from twenty, twenty-five feet away, um, and it's fine, but especially if you have what's called a shoot type waterfall, you know, where it's just basically one giant stream coming down. Uh, it may, It's incredibly beautiful standing there and looking at it. But in a photo, it's like this one little slit of interest and then just crud all on the right and left side of it uh, because you're, you're right up there. And I've been trying to force myself to To stand further away from what's interesting in the in the landscape. Obviously, it depends on the landscape. You know, sometimes this is gonna work, sometimes it isn't. But uh, too often, I've been too close to just like, wham! It's just like right there, and instead going back. And kind of having the interesting thing a little bit further, uh, smaller in there. And then you just can really appreciate the environment of that place and have that just kind of highlighting um, kind of being the interest further in there.
1: We got to um, Skogafoss, which is a big waterfall in Iceland, and it's like the Disneyland. It is the number, probably one, if not in the top three, Um, they pile in tour buses like they're going out of style Mm -hmm. into this area. And we, we got there early. Um, so you were actually able to get a wide angle shot of Skogafoss and not have like 25 different tourists. And um, I saw some, well, um, one of our participants' photos and it was um, really interesting to see the waterfall like how it was 200 years ago before it was, you know, a tourist um, industry um, and just this place that a tour bus stopped, right? It was, it was much more um, ethereal. Like this waterfall inside of this landscape.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's uh, it, you know, and going along with that in terms of like you know the standing back and really appreciating that environment and and uh, you know feeling it for what it is, like you were talking about. Um, I, I think another thing that I commonly mess up um, that I'm trying to force myself to to improve on is also not shooting straight on to things. I think too often, like for example, if I'm shooting a, a barn or an old, you know, old shack kind of house on a, on a farm things, too often I'm shooting pretty flat onto that subject. And I'm learning to just, I just got to get a little bit to the side, yeah. just kind of get a little bit different than that, than that flat on shot. I mean, sometimes obviously that works, uh, but, but for me too often, I was shooting that flat on um, with the landscapes. You know, it's very similar to portraits. Like if you're thinking of like the angle that you're going to shoot a la- landscape at, it's kind of like a, if you imagine a person standing there and they're just squared off to you, uh, you know, usually it's going to be a little bit more interesting if you go a little bit to the side. Absolutely. All right, how about tripod height? I, I mean, obviously this depends on the landscape, but we're going with a recipe here, right? This is like muscle memory. Where are you most commonly are you most commonly squatting or super low or standing tall? What's if you
1: had a go-to, what would it be? So probably low. Um just just because um suddenly the world looks a little bit different. Um and often um, shooting the sixteen to thirty-five, and getting pretty low. And when you get low, you can really make whatever's in that foreground interesting. Um, you can make it bigger than it looks because a wide-angle lens will um, make a little tiny flowers look much bigger than they are. And, and it'll, but the opposite will happen on the whatever far away from your lens will look smaller. So I think that. Um, I find myself getting low a lot, but also looking for unique perspectives. Like can, is there anything that's already in this landscape that can frame the subject? Um, There's a fall called Panther Creek falls that you've been to recently Mm -hmm. um, that is in the Washington wilderness. And it's this huge amphitheater of a falling white curtain of water. Um, Basically you, you can almost Set a wide angle lens down at the bottom of this and have waterfall in your entire photo. Yeah, it's
0: incredible. To. There's just it's, water dripping off every imaginable rock yep. that you can see. <laughs> it's so cool.
1: And um, so there's lots of mossy logs and that type of thing in the foreground. Um, the area has been loved to death, but it used to be much mossier. Um, so, um, but what you can do is you can use those um, different things. In your photo. So, so not all, o- it's not always going to, I guess, um, in this case, um, I wouldn't be low, um, mm-hmm. because if I was low, then, um, it wouldn't make very much sense for the composition. So, so I guess it's, um, also adapting to landscape as well.
0: Yeah, I I love kind of unique features of like that little log jam at the bottom of Panther Creek. For the next five or 10 years, everybody's photos are kind of going to, you're probably going to include that in, in a composition. I mean, of course, there are unique things you can do, but probably it's going to be there. Um, but it's going to change, you know, eventually that log jam is going to break and it's going to look like a different shot when you get there. Uh, or the slot canyons in Southern Utah, um, you know, Canary Creek falls has this unique ladder. That's so cool, but every couple of years it gets washed out in a flash flood and, and it changes. And so, I mean, it's it, there, it's kind of neat. The, the, Really well-known locations, how they change over time. Ansel Adams shot of the Snake River landing. Well, now the trees are a lot taller in that location. You can't really shoot it the way Ansel Adams shot it. Uh, So I I just love those little changes and and differences over time.
1: The Ice Lagoon in Iceland, um, this was the first I've heard of this, but apparently um, the glacier is receding so much that it's not going to be a thing in a few years. Hmm. So all the shots that people... And um, we had something similar happen. Um, there was a keyhole, so an arch that looked like a keyhole in Pacific City on the Oregon coast, and um, that arch collapsed. So there are um, there are small things like that, or or in some cases, big things um, that can change over time um, that will really like put a photograph in its period, right? Um, where where it was shot um, and kind of make it unique and special and then I'm not convinced that the 99% of the stuff we shoot were just kind of um, being a bit redundant uh-huh. um, but there are some things like that um, where the, um, the landscape does actually change yeah. And it's, it's really just
0: for, for nature lovers and landscape lovers who just yeah. kind of appreciate those things. It's just kind of cool uh, yeah. to see how they're, how they're different. You know, there are many locations that you can look at it and you say, oh, you shot this three or four years ago. It's not like that anymore. Right. Um. All right. So we got to go rapid fire through this next bit. Um. How about uh, filters like physical filters on your lens? What percentage of your shot are you pulling them out?
1: So a lot of people don't believe in filters anymore um, just because you can do everything in post, but I still, um, I love polarizing. Mm -hmm. Um, It saturates greens. It um, reduces specular reflections. Um, I'm using that word specifically reduces because I think if you kill all the reflections um, with a polarizer, then you're looking at like a rocky empty, what Looks like it was a riverbed, but you've polarized all the polarized uh-huh. light off of it.
0: <laughs> it looks like a dried up You're creek. like,
1: where's the water? <laughs> um, but if you cut off some of the reflections, then it can be um, more um, more aesthetically pleasing. It can simplify the photo. It can help take off reflections off leaves and um, give everything nice saturation. So that's one of my favorite filters for landscape. I also will bust out the three-stop or ten-stop um, the 10 stop is the go to when conditions are boring. Yep. It's like, like
0: when in danger break glass. <laughs> like, uh oh, yeah. things suck and I want to shoot yeah.
1: today. What do I do? Yeah. <laughs> I'm here anyway. Um, we, were at, we were at Vesterhorn. Um, and um, apparently, Vesterhorn um, is really shy around me. Um, it's this huge mountain range that um, has these amazing jagged peaks. that the last couple of times I've been there, um, there's just been a wall of mid clouds right on the top of the peak, so um, we we just ended up experimenting with ten stop to get the movement of the clouds. Um, but there's a lot of a lot of cool things that you can do um, with those ten stop filters, even in good light. Um, you just it has to occur to you, and you have to think about it. Mm-hmm. Um, what about you? Are you using any, any other filters?
0: I have been a lot more lately. Uh, I've kind of gone the way of digital with most of it. Uh, except for the polarizer, uh, well, and well, it's the polarizer and the ND that uh, there are situations that you you can't really replicate it. Uh, you can kind of, but but uh, not really. Um, and it's it's also about just being able to visualize it in the camera too. Uh, so polarizer and ND. I'm using. I bought a six. I bought a six stop ND filter, and I'm I'm hoping that I can get away with just one ND this time because I had to buy new filters obviously for the 82 millimeter thread. <laughs> on sony and One so I thought, you know if off. i have a six i can just jack up the iso if i want the shutter speed slower and i can <laughs> drop the iso and put on a polarizer i can double stack them if i want 10 or close to a 10 so maybe i can just get away with a six we're gonna see <laughs> always, uh, right. a right? always a
1: compromise right yeah
0: i know but right. they're the i've been buying these breakthrough uh filters and they're like 150 bucks a piece
1: yeah uh, yep. so i
0: didn't want to buy like a two, six, and a 10 is oh, kind of expensive. So yeah. All right. Uh, how
1: about, um, are you bracketing most of your shots? You know, these days I don't find myself. Well, again, the disclaimers, I'm shooting an A7R2. Um, yeah. The camera that I started shooting on was the Canon G7. And I swear, um, so this was a bridge camera and it's probably 10 years old. I don't even know. Um, I swear that the sensor on that thing um, was allergic to highlights. Um, I would have to bracket every single thing. Um, it's probably worse um, sensor technology than like an iPhone 5 as far as dynamic range. Mm-hmm. Um, but nowadays, you know, with um, an A7R two and 14 bits of dynamic range, um, as long as you're exposing for the highlight, you have three, four stops in the shadows, which is an incredible amount of dynamic range yep. to begin, with, especially if you're shooting at um, base ISO values. Um, if it's a very contrasty or complex scene from a dynamic range standpoint, then, um, I find myself manually bracketing. Um, I don't really ever do the, um, 10 second timer and then bleep, 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 like where Uh the camera clicks three times across the bracket. Um, I'm just looking at the screen and looking at the histogram and making sure that I have black detail and white detail. Um, and it's just I'm doing that by changing shutter speed. What about you? yeah, uh, you know, I've been I've been
0: bracketing a lot more lately. Um it's probably over the last four or five months, and the reason that I've been doing it more because I th- I th- I have the same thought as you. Like when I look at a shot, unless it's a really high dynamic range, you know, the sun is just peeking through uh, over the horizon and it's just super bright, and the camera just can't handle it. You know, if you're in a in a in a little gorge shooting a waterfall, or you know, just a fairly typical sunset, something like that, one shot's really gonna do it most of the time, but. As I look through, I mean, now that I've been shooting seriously for 10 years, when I look through photos from five and six years ago, it's obvious, you know, when I zoom in, the image quality is not the same as it is today. And so like, I'm in this for the long haul, uh... I don't want to shoot things that are going to be kind of, I mean, minorly. I mean, the photos are fine. You could still print them. But in terms of like what I'm really happy with image quality, and I can totally work with this just as good as a photo I took yesterday. No, sure. the, the photos from five and six years ago, they they are different. I, I it, uh, you know, it doesn't have that same quality, the ISO, the everything. And so part of, part of the bracketing, even if I'm not using them commonly, is like, I'm, I just want to collect all this data, right? Because five or six years from now, I can easily reprocess this thing, uh, but I want to keep it, you know?
1: And it doesn't cost anything, really. I mean, your hard drives might hurt a little bit, but it doesn't cost anything to take a few extra pictures. So if you're going to lean one way, getting more, getting less, might as well right yeah absolutely and i think that's
0: especially true for photographers who are just kind of building up their kit of gear i mean if you're shooting an a7r2 or a 5d mark 4 etc i don't know i mean they're they're really incredible but you know if you're really loving photography but you haven't made the giant gear investments yet and you're you know you're shooting a nikon d5200 or something like that kind of a entry level kind of camera um then Yeah, I I think it really is important. Really gather that data because you're going to want it later uh, if your camera's going to little, have a little bit tougher of a time with dynamic range, et cetera.
1: The Sony, the Sony A7R 2 uncompressed raw file is 80 megabytes. It's a monster. So, it's so, so cool. So I'm not bracketing because I don't want to bracket. I'm bracketing because I'm in pain. <laughs> and then you also, you know, you have to have the, the um, computer and hard drive space that can handle a file of that size because when um, Lightroom turns that into a TIFF, now we have gone from 80 megabytes to 200, 400, 500 megabytes per layer in mm-hmm. Photoshop. So it gets pretty, um, pretty crazy. Awesome. Well, Majid, it's been awesome to talk with you. We kind of went through the
0: whole process of uh, up to the point that you get to uh, take your actual shot, kind of walk through uh, just our typical uh, recipes. Uh, I'd love looking at your work. If uh, any listeners, we have a ton of new listeners recently. Um, and if that's you, be sure to check out Majid's website. It's majeedb.com. That's M A G E E db.com, uh or is it majid bad is that again on instagram or is it majid b
1: yeah if you just search instagram for majid m-a-j-e-e-d um then um, i'll pop up you'll be there you're yep, a Uh your I'll work is
0: awesome always an Thank inspiration you. to me it was great talking with you
1: you too jim